Coming up on this episode of East Screen, West Screen, we're here to talk about the Hong Kong Light lineup at Busan this year. Also, some news about Netflix launching in Japan. And a bit later, I'll be talking about the second scary movie from actress-turned-director Carrie Ng, Knock Knock, Who's There? This is East Screen, West Screen with Paul and Kevin, where if films were food, they'd be full of it. Hello and welcome to another episode of East Screen, West Screen. This is the show where we talk about films from Hong Kong to Hollywood and a lot of other stuff in between. I'm your host, Paul Fox, and joining me once again from a Hong Kong mausoleum is Mr. Kevin Ma. Hello there. Hey there, everybody. Hey, Paul. How's it going? All right. How are you doing, sir? Going all right on my end. Yeah. Um, it's, yeah. A, it's a busy month. We're now in the uh, early month, early days of September as we're recording this, and uh, I was I was looking at the coming lineup for September, and you were talking before about, you know, we're having actually a lot of Asian films coming. I did not realize exactly how many that meant. There's so many that uh, I, I'm, I'm having to pick and choose, like which ones we're going to be covering on the show and which ones are just going to get missed because we don't have enough recording slots to, to cover everything. Um and yeah, I, I wonder how many people are surprised that we're not talking about, you know, that artsy, award-winning uh, uh, um, wuxia movie that everyone else wants to talk about. Instead, yeah. we're talking about the carrying horror movie. Yeah, because the, the point is everybody's already talked about the award-winning, you know, uh, thing from uh, <laughs> from that that island place, which uh, <laughs> we can't designate for fear of getting getting in trouble, right? Um, no, but yeah, there's uh, there's just so much stuff coming out. Uh, we've got uh, two films this week. We've got you mentioned the Richie Wren directorial debut with Shu Chi in a couple weeks. We've also got uh, something from Fan Bing Bing, something about the Lady of the Dynasty or something. Dynasty Theater. Maybe. Yeah, and, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And uh, there's a Steffi Tang movie coming out also around the same time. So just a lot of stuff. Uh, in the month of September. And included in that month, I'm happy to report, or maybe not so happy to report, we are getting Attack on Titan 2, End of the World. So I'm oh. excited in two weeks. Yeah. But I, I, I think, uh, I don't think we're going to get to that on the show. I think. Are we? Are we I, not? I, I mean, it's it's coming out day and date with Japan, which is extremely rare. Like, literally, we have to wait until a Saturday to see it because it has to open on the same day as Japan. That's how... That actually almost never happens. Yeah, and, and I, I heard that they're actually sending a couple of the stars over here to help push the film. Yeah, apparently it'll be the world premiere here in Hong Kong. So that's 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 big, yeah. you know? As big as a titan, one might say. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I, I just... looking at the Looking at the film list... That we have to go by this month. Uh, I've been picking and choosing, and I think that there's actually some more interesting things to cover that week. 
um, in terms of the films that are coming out, it's films that are more relevant to um, my passion, at least, Hong Kong cinema. So, I don't know, maybe I'll do a write-up of my thoughts on Attack on Titan 2. I seriously don't think it's going, they're going to be any, you know, any very much divergent from what we talked about already with the first uh, installment. So, uh, but that'll be in a couple weeks, and uh, we'll keep you updated if we survive the screening or not. So let's get into some proper news this week. We're going to throw it back over to the news desk with Mr. Ma. What do you have for us, sir? Over here at the news desk, I mean, not much in terms of immediate news, but um, the Busan International Film Festival lineup was announced uh, last week. I think last week and um, actually right before we recorded last episode. So I I didn't really have time to look at it, to talk about it. So now, uh, you know, I've had a chance to kind of look at it a bit and um, we can talk a bit about how it relates to uh, what we're interested in, which is like you said earlier, Hong Kong cinema. Um, Unfortunately, uh, Hong Kong cinema actually has had quite strong spots at the Busan International Film Festival. For example, Cold War was the opening film. Uh, I forgot when Cold War was. Two years ago? Three years ago? Two years ago, I think. Um, and and um, last year, the festival closed with Gangster Payday. So um, this year's lineup is kind of a surprise because it is a bit weak um in in terms of uh hong kong films uh for example hong kong films did not have the opening nor the closing spot um instead the opening spot goes to an indian film named zuban uh indie film and the closing film goes to a chinese mainland china film named mountain cry uh from director larry yang who uh uh, uh actually directed a few films that we may not know about actually i think one film we may have seen. Um, I forget the title right now, but um, anyway, that film is has um, a very strong international sales agent and also has uh, co-production money from Australia's Village Rose Show, who you may see um, the logo a lot in, in Hollywood films, so it's pretty big production. Anyway, only five Hong Kong films this year at the Busan International Film Festival. Um, you have Mabel Chun's A Tale of Three Cities, which will be opening this week here in Hong Kong and opened last week in China. We have a outdoor outdoor screening of Monster Hunt, the, the hit fantasy film. Um, and there's also Johnny Toe's uh, Office, which will again be opening actually after the theatrical, will be screening in Busan after the theatrical release here in Hong Kong. So none of them are really big sort of premiere screenings. Um, I guess the closest thing to a premiere screening, even though, again, it, it comes out after the local theatrical release, is Christopher Doyle's Hong Kong Trilogy, the um, sort of pseudo-documentary that partly captures or uses the Occupy movement as sort of its background, but uh, honestly, it's a Christopher Doyle film, so no one will know what the hell it's about. Um, and the fifth film, uh, part of the midnight midnight screening uh, section is SPO to a time for consequences. So not a very strong lineup this year of Hong Kong films. Um, there isn't really anything, I guess, high profile um, enough that comes out around this time or October, November. Um, 
I know today the uh, hazy late or crazy hazy late sorry lazy hazy crazy hey crazy lazy hazy crazy hazy anyway the the new film produced by Paul Chan and written by um by by or, or the directorial debut of a scriptwriter uh, look you some um sorry the film is lazy hazy crazy uh, that film is coming out in October 29th. Um, so a bit surprised that it didn't really get slot in Busan. Um, there are obviously, you know, quite a going to be a few Hong Kong films coming out in the fall, but none of those were picked for release uh, for screening in Busan, unfortunately, for whatever reason it may be. Now, note that actually um, a few weeks after um, Busan is the Tokyo International Film Festival, and I suppose whatever Busan doesn't have is may be likely to show up at the uh, Tokyo International Film Festival. So that's just something to think about, I guess, in a few weeks when Tokyo announces its lineup. Um, Paul, any any thoughts about the, the, the five films that I talked about, uh, the Hong Kong films? Well, yeah, I, I think it's exciting for a couple of them. I mean, we've already had, we've already seen that and talked about, it. you know, uh, SPL2, for example, um, but I'm kind of surprised that uh, that they're getting some of the stuff later. I mean, like you mentioned, The Office uh, being screened there actually later than its release over here. You'd think that uh, they'd want to push some of these films as premieres. Well, uh, it, it's I think um, the well they already have um, a sort of international pre- premiere slot in Toronto um, in early September. So, um, Busan, you know, when it comes to Busan and Toronto, I think Edco, the sales agent or the company that's handling sales, would want to push it to somewhere like Toronto. Now, I think, I, this is my speculation, okay? I cannot confirm whether this is true or not. I would have bet that Edco wanted to put the film, I mean, it's a Johnny Toe film, and the guy's been to Cannes. So, obviously, they wanted to have a slot somewhere, say, like Cannes, which it didn't get into, or, or Venice which happens uh, actually in a few days. So, um, and right before the China opening. So, um, uh, yeah, so I'm guessing it's part of these, these whole festival politics where, you know, they wanted a bigger festival and Busan just taking it because of Johnny Toe film. Um, so, like you said, it's kind of sad that that a festival that has, that has scored quite a few important Hong Kong film premieres. Um, like, cause I think, I think uh, Cold War was a world premiere. At Busan, so that's why it's the opening film. Um, so for a festival that has secured such high-profile uh, premieres, that this year is sort of kind of lost its its footing. Now, given that, I guess uh, there were a lot of talk this year about Busan because um, of its its struggle against the city government and, and uh, uh, funding cuts and things like that. Um, so, so it's kind of at a weak weak position this year. I mean, it, it's kind of strange this year that they still have not announced its filmmaker of the year, Asian filmmaker of the year. Last year, En Hui got this slot and the Golden Era screened at the festival. Um, even though, again, it wasn't a premiere because it had closed Venice a few weeks earlier. But still, um, it's kind of odd that they haven't announced their big filmmaker in focus this year and they haven't really decided what films if they're screening any films by that filmmaker so um for for a festival that is celebrating its 20th anniversary it's sort of acting a bit odd um but anyway we'll know when you know i think in over next week who the asian filmmaker is 
Um, personally, I'm kind of guessing it might be Ho Xiao Shen because he's going to be showing up at the festival and the assassin will be, uh, aka the film we're not talking about this week, um, is getting a major major screening slot there. But again, this, this festival politics, um, this sort of bring attention that I sort of, I, I guess it might be indicative of the festival's weakness or par- partly also the sort of weakness of Hong Kong cinema in the fall. I'm not sure. Um, we'll know soon when, when we see the release schedule of the autumn uh, start to come out. But yeah, for now, um, yeah, it's kind of a mystery, this, this whole Busan International Film Festival thing this year. Mm. Well, let's, uh, let's get over to Japan then and talk about something that's maybe a bit more interesting. Netflix, a sensitive subject here on the uh, podcast over the years. But you have some news about Netflix in Japan, <laughs> right? Yeah, and 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 I think we're gonna be repeating this argument. Um, um, but anyway, okay, I, I'm sort of stepping stepping uh, into danger here. But anyway, Netflix Japan has launched. It launched today uh, in Japan. It was meant to start tomorrow, but it started today. So congratulations, uh, Netflix in Japan. Um, um, you know. What so what what is Netflix offering? Um, I'm not sure yet because I can't get into the actual Japan website because of a uh, regional restriction. Um, but it seems like they will be carrying a lot of American shows, more American shows than Japanese shows. I'm not sure what its um, Japanese offering will be, but um, it is the second uh, American streaming platform to enter the country after Hulu. Even though actually Hulu has really struggled in Japan and and has now been sold to um, uh, local Japanese television uh, network, um, the Pongo Television Network. Um, so, but I think unlike Hulu, Netflix came in with a one first original programming. Hulu took a while before it launched original programming, but unlike Hulu, Netflix is launching with original programming, but um, unlike its counterpart in the States, it is actually launching with a reality show. And a, and actually the the a, a new season of a reality show, no less. Um, that show is called Terrence House. Terrence House is sort of like an MTV style reality show that puts um, six young people, uh, three men, three men, three women, in a suburban or seaside house, um, and sort of hope that they'll fall in love with each other. That's the sort of the idea. So it's like the real world, but in Japan, um, it ran for. Fairly successful, um, uh, two two years uh, at Fuji Television, who is actually a Netflix uh, local partner, um, and also Fuji also produced a feature film version as uh, to serve as the series finale, and actually did very well at the box office in Japan. So this, um, so uh, showing up at Netflix again is kind of a surprise. Um, occurrence, but anyway, unlike Hulu, it is it is launching with original programming and um, the the looking at the Netflix Japan um, Facebook. Someone has already praised it by you know pe- uh, someone being able to watch Friends again. Um, although someone has complained that there's no House of Cards, um, I'm guessing uh, some of its own original show, American original show, might not be showing up. Although there are some. Uh, of its American show showing up, I'm not sure which one and which which one which ones are and which ones aren't. Um, but anyway, let's see how it does because Netflix is or Japan is Netflix's first stop in Asia. Um, obviously, there there are difficulties to enter a market like China, where there there are already plenty of of video streaming services and 
and the um, uh, you have censorship to deal with and things like that. Um, and and perhaps if it does well in Japan, uh, we may see it in other Asian bigger Asian markets. Uh, Paul, here we go. What what do you think, Netflix Japan? Yeah, well, I, good for them. Uh, it's been a long time coming for them to finally get over in Asia, but they're not in Hong Kong yet. So, uh, you know, screw you, Netflix. I had to I, go. I had to go out and and join the ranks of the VPN. Thanks to the guidance of Mr. Ma, and, and I am no longer a Netflix hater because I can now get access to Netflix, but I'm doing so somewhat illicitly, I guess. I'm, I'm, I'm not supposed to do it in this manner, but it, they, they leave me no option, so. Honestly, I to, to sort of go back to or reiterate my position is that I don't think Netflix has any need nor any interest or the ability to enter Hong Kong. And I think that... Um, that unless they enter Korea, unless they enter Singapore, I think Hong Kong would be one of the last markets, and I completely understand from a business point of view. Well, see, I disagree with that, because Why? Hong Kong has a viable enough market to have its own Apple Store, and, you know, on I mean, like on iTunes, it, they, have, they have a completely different iTunes selection from U.S. iTunes. And it's viable. It has titles that sometimes you can't get in the U.S. For example, earlier this year, I watched um, the movie Ex Machina, which had not been re- was not released. You know, it was it was already available for rent on Hong Kong iTunes long before it hit U.S. iTunes. So I think that there, you know, that there's there's a market there, and if you know Netflix was smart, they would work the Hong Kong market, just like Apple has, and use that as, you know, perhaps leverage to get into China. China is going to be a tough nut for them to crack, um, especially well, when they for- have to compete with things that may or may not be legitimately licensing material like La TV and, and PBS and, and some of the other services that are already in place for, um, you know, entertainment streaming. Well, okay. Uh, for I think if you talk about iTunes Store, we we only got an iTunes store because of music, not because of movies. Movie was a, was a, was sort of a, a a a part of the package. The only reason that Hong Kong got a got a iTunes store is because Hong Kong music was able to be on other iTunes store around the world. If it if Hong Kong music was only allowed to be in Hong Kong iTunes store, or if Hong Kong movies or 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 yeah, if Hong Kong music was only allowed to be in Hong Kong iTunes store, we would not get an iTunes store. Yeah, but but just the- like S Mechana, just like X Mechana. Was allowed to be allowed to be released in Hong Kong because actually it was released in most places around the world. It skipped theatrical actually around the world, um, or or it got to theatrical earlier, and we only got it because it was being released on video around the world. Yeah, but it wasn't. I'm telling it was. you, it was. It was it, 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 but only not in until the, later. The U.S. The U.S. Not, no, no. In the, look, I watched S. Mechana in May on a plane just two weeks after it came out in 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 the U.S. and I was already pushing the 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 uh, Korean DVD on Yes Asia right even before the U.S. 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 theatrical release. Yeah, but we had it in February here in Hong Kong. No, not February. Not February. I, I'm pretty sure it, it, it was like it was like at least. A month to two months because I had it bookmarked yes. over on Amazon, and it was already showing up for rent long before it was even released on Amazon. 
the potential was there. Now, maybe it's a dwindling market, again, because of competition from services that you use and my wife uses, uh, you know, out of China. And maybe that just makes it not economically viable. But I waited long and hard for Netflix to come over here. They kept saying, yeah, we're going to, you know, next year, Asia, next year, Asia. And they kept pushing it back and focusing on Europe. And so finally, I just went the VPN route. I pay a little bit more and I, you know, get access now. So I'm happy. No, I, I, I'm sorry. I still, I think Hong Kong has, I think Hong Kong has a huge problem with thinking that itself to be a viable market for at least at least financially i mean look at what netflix has to do to to consider japan viable they have to uh tie up with a local television network and even now at this moment it is sort of seen as a um a television network and 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 sort of as a way to push other television networks um into sort of acting the problem is in hong kong there's no real I mean, you have a lot of content deal. You have a lot of things to tie up. And let's face it. I mean, Japan has a population of, what, 200 million, 125 million people versus a market of 7 million. Um, and most of these people aren't – how many people are, are, are going to pay for Netflix? I, I truly have no idea. Even if you have one let's – say, let's say 5% of the population um, pays for Netflix, okay? Let's say 5% of the Japanese population pays for Netflix, that's five million subscribers. Okay, out of um, the sixty million subscriber that that globally that Netflix has, that's like a ten percent increase in subscriber right right away. Tell about five percent of Hong Kong people. That's let's do that math here: seven million, seven hundred thousand, seventy thousand, seventy thousand. That's maybe maybe a hundred thousand people, less than a hundred thousand people. Um, and and if you multiply this, each subscription costs nine nine dollars US, hundred thousand dollars. That's nine hundred thousand dollars in revenue. Is that even gonna cover server costs and content costs, content acquisitions, and and all that stuff? It's it it's. But you but know, if you if you that's just my point is this, they could give access to Hong Kong to US iTunes. If they wanted to, wait, right? wait, no, 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 no. That's they, just that's even more naive than I no, than I expected. They, that's they, not, they because, could, they're, no, no, because they're just, there's more money in selling these rights to to the local television networks. Let's say like Sony Television, people who operate the big conglomerates. Let's say Fox International Channels, who operates ten channels across Asia, ten different territories across Asia, and they will pay money for The Walking Dead. They will pay. Million, possibly millions of dollars, okay, to AMC to A to AMC for to to show The Walking Dead day and date. Sony Television Network promoted their launching show when they launched last year was Day and Date House of Cards season three. So actually, you you talk about Netflix being the new model, whatever they're doing exactly the same thing the cable networks in the U.S. are doing. They're making more money selling these selling rights to these shows to overseas television networks. That's why House of Cards is not in Netflix Japan. That's why House of Cards had to be shown on cable here because they make let's say let's face it, subscribers make their money sure, but for a show that costs a House of you know a show like House of Cards it costs them what fifty sixty million per season, they they need to sell broadcasting rights. To make their money back, subscriber is a brand. It's okay. So House of Cards is a branding thing to 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 attract subscribers. But let's face it, in the end, they still make a ton of money selling broadcasting rights. And yes, the old I know it's an old model. It's not new. Yeah, we should we should think ahead. But global distribution clearly is not a financially viable 
model for content owner because I think content content watcher like us or not and there are not enough content watchers like us who are willing to reward the content contents uh, owner for doing global distribution there's still not enough of us who are willing to to pay a premium for that um, and that's partly the audience's fault and that's partly the the lack of sort of a uh, uh, working example for the new model mm. but to be realistic Let's face it, global distribution is never going to make as much money as the traditional distribution model. That's why the traditional distribution model has worked so well and is still working and is still making money. And that's why Netflix can't make it to Hong Kong with their own programming without any sort of regional blockage. That's why Netflix spends probably so much money on on doing regional blocking. I couldn't even look at Netflix Japan. I can't even look at a homepage without logging in. That's how much money they're spending to block me out. Well, you make some good points, sir, but I still think we should have a future where region blocking and all that nonsense is a thing of the past. The internet should be a region of its own. If you have the ability to pay in some kind of digital currency, you should have access. Yeah, sure. In that, in, in that utopia, people will have a conscience and not download stuff for free. Well, we'll have to see and we'll revisit this argument once again in another two years or so. <laughs> <laughs> when Netflix, when yeah. Netflix launches in Korea, we'll come back to it. <laughs> you know, but as, as a bit of a, an, a sort of a, a bit of postscript here, I just read an article um, uh, today, in fact, uh, over on Facebook, where Apple is now getting into the content creation game. Uh, because they see themselves falling behind both Netflix and Amazon, I think, and they are looking to produce, um, you know, exclusive stuff for their own their own network. Now, it'll be interesting to see: is that going to be solely limited to Apple, iTunes, US, uh, or is that going to expand out to other markets like the Hong Kong market or the European markets, where we have um, other uh, iTunes networks that you have to sign into? I don't know. Tell Amazon to start opening up their shows first, and then maybe maybe we'll have some kind of hope that Apple will also open up their shows. Yeah. All right. Enough of our bickering. Uh, final thoughts. I did want to uh, mention uh, you were at the Singapore Film Festival here in Hong Kong over the weekend, right? Uh, I was. Any, I watched two films. Any uh, any thoughts or things you'd like to share from that? It was incredibly depressing. Um, so I bought I bought ticket to a documentary named Invisible City. Um, I had to, you know, when I bought tickets, you know, it was like most half the theater was filled, and I had to buy a ticket in the fourth row. Yeah, I um, so that. I thought, so I thought, oh, it must be, it must be, you know, it must be crowded. I walk in, there was only seven people, including myself. And by the end of the film, sixty minutes later, I was the only one remaining in the cinema. Um, well, had they like purchased the tickets for giveaway or something? I don't know. It was the, the you know the festival was held by the Singapore um, Council or the Singapore. That's the right phrase. Anyway, this Council of Singapore, whatever the councilor, whatever. And I have a feeling that they held a bunch of seats and gave tickets away, but mm. seemed like no one was interested in showing up for film a film like Invisible City. Um, behind me was a a a a thirty-ish um, woman, her kid, and her mother. Um, the kid won't stop talking. The mother thought the whole movie was weird, and they left about thirty minutes. I had to move because they were the kid was talking so much, I, and I had to move. Anyway, um, they they left about thirty minutes into the film. Two other young people left, and then 
a, a woman who was there by herself also left, and by the end of the film, I was by myself. It's a sixty-minute documentary, people. You know, it's not a sh- long film, and granted, it's not really a an, a super accessible film. But you know, it's not a terrible film. So I don't know why people. Who are these people going? Why did what they didn't know about? They're getting into. Um, the film was fine. Anyway, that night I saw uh, Unlucky Plaza. Uh, it was put on a bigger screen. It was kind of the closing film of the festival. Um, and uh, it was better attended. It had about 15 to 20 people. And they didn't really leave, thankfully. Um, and actually, that was the best film I saw on Sunday. And I watched four films on Sunday. And it was the best one. Um, and it was quite a good film. So, unfortunately, there wasn't many much promotion around this festival not many people you know to were interested i guess in singaporean films to begin with and the fact that they held it at the metroplex um on the weekend of the comic world convention um happening at that same venue sort of made it worse for people because i had to line up 15 minutes for a bus um whereas usually the way for the bus shouldn't take more than five minutes so so it was kind of a you know I guess bad idea to begin with and the way that it was executed was a little disappointing for the fact that you know he has such these pretty good Singaporean films showing here and it's a very rare occasion so it's a bit sad it might not even happen this year because of bad or next year because of uh, bad attendance yeah I I mentioned last time that uh, they were screening one film I wanted to see Singapore Dreaming but I couldn't get out to the screening and I bet there will be less than 10 people at the screening that you almost yeah. and that that's an older film too so I think that uh, you know a lot of film buffs probably who follow Singaporean cinema have already seen that one and I think they probably all uh, if I remember correctly the lineup also included uh, I'm Not Stupid right and uh, a couple of the other more popular commercial titles I don't think they um, um, there was a there was a gangster one that I really liked from uh, a couple years ago that uh, but I don't think that was in the lineup but yeah it, I only found out about it myself uh, via Facebook like uh, a pretty much about a week before it it ran and I made a note of the ones I wanted to see but it was just not a good weekend for me to get out to film um, I hope they bring back the event next year because actually you know some of the films they show. I mean, Singapore does make some good films, and ac- unfortunately, there aren't many video copies available out there. So even if you want to see it, it's it's actually very difficult to sort of get a, get your hands on them. So I hope that that you know, if such festivals do come around a neighborhood, you know, feel free to email me about it. You know, I can tell you information whether you see it or not. Um, I can I can have opinions about films privately. So you know. Email me, ask me, or or ask someone you know. Do some research, you know. Try and search out for these films. These these sort of festivals really need the support. All right, I think that's gonna wrap it up for our news segment this week. Let's take a short musical break, and we'll be back to talk about Carrie's feature, Knock Knock, Who's There. And welcome back. Our film this week, the horror anthology, Knock Knock Who's There. This is the second film from actress-turned-director Carrie M. 
A horror, this is a horror anthology that follows a series of scary events surrounding three individuals who work in a Hong Kong funeral home. So this is not to be confused with sort of the Western style funeral home. This is more of the sort of the Chinese Taoist style funeral home. Um, and if you've seen films like uh, Aberdeen or other films where they have Taoist rites performed and um, or if you remember Eason's film uh, Funeral March, for example, where they have the guests come in to pay their respects. You know, you see these kinds of scenes in lots of Hong Kong films. So this is where that is taking place primarily. So the first tale in this anthology of three deals with the MC of the funeral home. He is the um, person who stands at the microphone and welcomes guests as they come in to pay their respects to the departed. And that is actually the China, the saying that they say um, is, um, how does it go, Kevin? Yao Hak Do. Is that Yao Hak Do, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then that's bow. what they say to welcome, you know, saying that the guest has arrived. That's actually the Chinese name for this film. So the MC of the funeral home who has to, finds he has to help prepare rites for his slain ex-girlfriend um, starts to have some strange encounters uh, happen to him throughout the at the funeral home and has to figure out, you know, what's going on. He has his ex-girlfriend uh, come back to visit him. The second tale in this anthology focuses on a young withdrawn woman who builds effigies. These are the paper, um, paper things that get burned and they're supposed to go into the afterlife. Uh, I, there's an effigy shop where I live nearby here in Taipo and, uh, I always love walking by there because they have some of the most amazing stuff uh, out in the just in the front. I mean, you can see big stuff like cars and stuff being assembled in the back, and I guess you can order even bigger stuff. You know, uh, the traditional things are like the the paper servants, but they have things like iPads and iPhones and uh, name brand things of all kinds, designer bags. And these look very kind of oddly like the real thing, just sort of this paper and cardboard variation that will ultimately get burned. So um, this young withdrawn woman works in her aunt's effigy shop. Her sole companion is a black cat. And when the cat mysteriously disappears one day, uh, things start to take a turn for the strange. The final story then tells a tale of the funeral parlor's resident uh, makeup artist who doesn't do the makeup for the corpses, but she's there to sort of make um, body parts, fake body parts and things, uh, sort of mannequin style, um, in case those are needed throughout the service for some reason. And she finds a phone, and the phone's owner uh, wants to meet up with her, but um, it actually leads her to discover something rather gruesome and grisly. So that's kind of the stage. This is a very common format for Hong Kong horror films where we get to sort of a series of three films, uh, three stories that are sometimes related through some way, shape, or form. So the, the central point here is this place that they all work at. Uh, the stories themselves are not directly interconnected themselves, though they do try and structure it so there are like a couple scenes where characters may pass each other you'll see one character in a scene who then becomes relevant uh in in one of the later stories the film is kind of a holiday release of sorts coming out the day before ghost festival which was on august 28th of this year 
and uh, Carrie Ng, I think she really puts in a full directorial effort this time. Um, her earlier film this year, Angel Whispers, was um, co-directed, but this one is solely credited to her. The There's um, some interesting uh, other work. She's given a credit as the story writer, but she's not the script writer. The script writing credit goes to Frankie Tam, who uh, has previously worked on things like The Four and The Four Three and uh, Legends of the Fist, girls um, and some other films that we've talked about in previous shows the um, the film though I in terms of being a horror film it follows a lot of sort of the traditional technical aspects that you would expect and a lot of this is very indicative of a new director um, going to the well we might say and going for those things that we have seen before and they, I guess they feel that they have to put in there uh, to, to be qualified as, as a horror film. So the film opens with a very sort of traditional sound jump scare where they just kind of suddenly something, you know, you're looking at a, at a scene, nothing's happening and then something pops up and there's a loud sort of blong sound and it makes you jump out of your seat. I've talked about in horror films before, I really hate that. I find it to be um, used overly and to ad nauseum um, in films, especially films by new, newer directors. I think we talked a little bit about this with last year's film, um, Hungry Ghost Festival. And uh, Nick Chung, in his solo um, directorial debut too, he was kind of going to the well with, with some of the same kind of stuff. But uh, I'm... I think that this film is a little bit more solidly put together than Angel Whispers. So I think uh, Carrie learned a bit from that first film, and she's actually showing some growth here with this film. So the first tale of the three tales, they're, they're each given a title. And the first tale is called Missing. And the reason it's called Missing is because Annie Lou, she plays a new bride, and uh, she's... Uh, driving along with her husband-to-be, or her husband, I guess it's their their wedding night, or they're engaged. I, I kind of missed exactly what, what the deal was. Um, but she's dressed like a bride. And I think maybe they're on the way to the wedding, or it was an engagement party, but why is she wearing kind of this white dress? It, it, it wasn't really clear, but she they start getting chased by paparazzi. Her husband-to-be is like this big tycoon, and she gets sick and she sticks her head out the window and it gets taken off by a dump truck. So she's decapitated and that kind of sets up her role as the literal ghost bride of the first story. Now, baby John Choi plays Roy. He's the MC I mentioned before, the ex-boyfriend of Isabel. We slowly learn over time why the two of them are not together, why she was with this new guy that she was going to get married. That story is a little bit kind of convoluted. They they make this excuse as to why they're not together, and it's kind of very weak when you think about it in terms of the plot-wise, but the plot's not there to focus on that. It's there to focus on the haunting and the, the, the scare aspect of the narrative. So Isabel's ghost seems content to hang around the mausoleum long enough to um, hook back up with uh, baby John, and uh, there's actually sort of an old school style music video 
montage sequence um, towards the end part of, of that story. The second tale, then, is called Karma. And in this tale, we have Carrie M and Simon Loy uh, as a greedy couple. And this part was fun because it's really great to see the two of them, these two veteran uh, actors, together on screen. They have good, some pretty good chemistry. They're both despicable um, because of their greedy nature. And it's always good to see Simon Loy, especially in a supernatural film. It, it, to me, that just reeks of Hong Kong cinema. And it's something that I was, I, I wasn't, I didn't know he was in it until he showed up and I was very happy to see him there on the screen. So this story follows uh, Kate Tsui. She plays this withdrawn character, Sue Rong, who's the niece of Carrie M and Simon Loy. And she works in their shop. And they're always kind of, you know, they're, they're, as I said, greedy. They cheat their customers. Um, they seem to make her do a lot of the work, putting the effigies together. She keeps to herself. Her only friend is this black cat. And things go a little bit wrong because Carrie M hears about this superstition where you take a live cat and you nail it, um, you, you nail it shut in a coffin while it's alive. And as it's scratching to try and get out over time, uh, that's supposed to bring you good luck. It's supposed to scratch out money. So she's... The hell? <laughs> yeah. And they, they have a name for this. It's called cat planting. Okay. Um, so yeah, you plant the cat in the coffin and it's buried alive. And then as it slowly scratches um, before it dies, you know, trying to get out, it's that scratching is supposed to make you rich and wealthy. And it seems to work. She starts making... Uh, a lot of money winning all her ma Mahjong games and everything. Uh, but then, uh, of course, uh, Kate Soy's character finds out about this. Again, she's very withdrawn. She doesn't have any lines, really, um, you know, which is maybe a good thing, depending on if you like Kate Soy's acting or not. Um, but she does get to act as a possessed cat, basically. So she gets to do some cat acting. So fanboys, look out. Uh, the, the sequence here is, is not nearly as fun as, um, stuff we've seen with cats elsewhere. So yeah, this is not like Lamni Choi's The Cat. Um, nothing so crazy or zany as that. Rebecca Zoo shows up at a certain point in this story too, as a sexy sort of ghost prostitute. I wasn't really clear on her connection to, um, the cat, if she was like another incarnation of the cat, or she was just a ghost who was helping the cat. So some of this, some of these aspects aren't, the connections aren't very clear. The final tale is called Smell. And for me, this was perhaps the most entertaining. Um, if only because uh, Eric Kwakwalang has a turn here as a necrophiliac. And sorry, that's a spoiler, but I have to say that because it makes the whole film pretty much worthwhile. So, you know, if you go see this film, sit through the first story, sit through the second story, just to get to this third story with Eric Kwok. Um, the main the main premise of this story, Jennifer Tse, um, she plays Yan. Um, you'll remember her from uh, earlier films like Hong Kong Ghost Stories and Naked Soldier. She's a sculptor, as I said, who builds body parts for the mausoleum if they need it. She's actually working on a a replacement head for the Annie Louis character because, uh, you know, they bring the body in and it's missing the head, basically. Um, so she's she, she does work like that. <clears throat> she finds a phone and she starts getting texts from the phone's owner. 
and the phone's owner says like, oh, you know, come meet me and bring me the phone. And the texts very soon thereafter start turning into videos, you know, these short sort of Vine videos of her, of the owner trying to lead uh, Jennifer Say's character to where she's at. And it kind of pushes things into the into the realm of the odd, into the Twilight Zone realm, because uh, the videos that are being sent are being shot from the third person. That is, there's an external person who's shooting, supposedly, the phone's owner as she's pointing and directing. And that's already kind of weird. I mean, you would think that people, someone would start asking questions at that point. But it does push the, uh, push the story along, and it does become perhaps... Um, the most gruesome and compelling uh, story because it really pushes the to be boundary a bit with some gore, with some implied sex. And I think it also has, I, I mentioned that, you know, the cheap scare of the film right in the beginning with the sound blare. This sequence has one of the best straight up scares of a film that I've seen in a long, long time. And it's the best one in this film. And it's the best sort of straight up scare. It's creative. It's unique. It's still kind of traditional in a sense, but you know, it's one of those things that you just you weren't expecting because it was it seemed to be pushing in this one kind of a genre direction, and then it jumps into this other thing. Um, and it was scary. I think the people in the audience enjoyed that scare a lot too. I know that I did, and um, it's it's one to to, it, to to look forward to. So that and Eric Kwok's performance, I think. Um, really sold this third story for me. Um, this story also addresses a major problem that I have with ghosts and the idea of haunting and revenge. And I didn't think it was going to do it at first, but it it kind of gets there in the end. And I talked about this um, a little bit on, on another podcast, I think with um, Kenneth Brerson over at the uh, podcast on fire. Um, we were talking about Herman Yao's film last year. Um, second coming and you know I that you have these issues where a, a ghost is haunting uh, a person to the extent to where that ghost maybe even kills that person right but then my question is always this so now that person's a ghost they're angry they have a need for revenge so why doesn't it then become ghost on ghost violence you know why don't ghosts go after other ghosts who cause them to die Th this kind of a thing so i always have a, a question when it comes to who gets haunted and why they get haunted and how the rules of haunting works within certain films i know i probably overthink this a lot especially in some of these lower budget films but this one um this this third story had me you know bringing up those kinds of questions and then they kind of did something to address that issue that worked for me so in terms of the technical aspects of this film, though, it is pretty weak. Um, a lot of the stuff they're doing is through some filter effects. There's, for example, a coloration effect on Annie Liu. So whenever she's in the room, um, they've kind of thrown a grayscale filter on the entire room, and she's kind of given this sort of greenish painted-on look. And it doesn't... It's not like the old days where they just throw a green light spotlight up from below. Um, to signify somebody's a ghost. This is much more done through After Effects filters, and it's a bit artistic, but it doesn't always work as well. Um, 
So the effects, the, the, the visual effects, I say, don't always work. There's some poor CG in a few places, uh, especially in some of the beginning stories. Um, by the middle story and the last story, they get into some more practical effects. As I said, the, the last story especially pushes the gore a little bit. Um, again, it's not a Category 3 film, so it's nothing over the top. But uh, it does imply some stuff, and uh, it, it relies a little bit more on practical work in that latter story and I appreciate that a little bit more than some of the more uh, visual effects that they try and uh, squeak by with. And, and by the end though I think that there was enough of a connection between the stories and there was enough humor throughout that I really liked this film better than her first film Angel Whispers. Uh, it's nowhere near as convoluted as that story was the there there's she does seem to like gore a lot you know there there's some gore in angel whispers though I, if i remember correctly that was a category three film but she's not afraid to try and push the gore here even for a category 2b and i think what i really liked about this was it felt very much in line with some of the early troublesome night films and that's a series that i really do love a lot um, the early ones the later ones when they started shooting on video uh, i think they started uh, getting less and less interesting so I enjoyed this film, I think, a lot. I, I do like the sort of ghost story genre, and I, I like the anthology setup that they do. So for me, this film, I think, worked a bit more than some of the other reviews that I've read for it. I know that... Um, who Who's writing over at uh, SCMP, Kevin? Is that uh, Edmund Lee? Edmund Lee, yeah. Yeah, I know he hated this film. Yep. Um, he, he just basically <clears throat> said that... Uh, Carrie should probably give up directing uh, after <laughs> this. Uh, I, I did have to disagree with him because I think uh, she's shown growth. Yes, she's you know doing some stuff that's, again, very common for a, a new director to do. But I've seen, you know, Soi Chung go back and look at uh, New Blood, you know, and some of his early scare stuff. He's doing a lot of the same, you know, they, they do a lot of the same um new director techniques basically and and they they start to find their footing and find things that that they like and things that work for them and they get more experience and i see i i get that impression here with this film i i see the growth from the first film so um i think i'm much more forgiving of that and again because it's got that that sensibility of the troublesome night films which to me speaks to an older period of hong kong cinema that i really enjoy um, I, I, I had more fun in this film than I certainly expected to. So, yeah, I'd say if you're a fan of Carrie M or the Troublesome Night series, you know, spare this one uh, a bit of your time and uh, you might just enjoy it. I know you're not a fan of the horror movie, so this probably won't be on your watch list anytime soon, right, Kevin? I, I'll watch it um, eventually on video because, I mean, it does count for the awards, um, the Love HK Film Awards um, at the end of the year. So I will watch it eventually. I just wait for video where I don't have to worry about cranked up sound scares. I can just <laughs> turn it down or whatever. You know, I'll just watch, the, I'll just judge the movie as what it is mm. instead of, you know, kind of over, yeah, and, and, and hating it because of sound scares. Sorry. Well, I'll be I'll be curious to hear what you have to say when you do see it. You're listening to the East Screen West Screen podcast. 
Visit Comcast.com for more. You have been listening to the Screen West Screen podcast. If you would like to be part of the show, you can get in touch with us via the website at Comcast.com. That's K-O-N-G-C-A-S-T dot com. You can follow us over on Twitter, twitter.com at Comcast. And you can hook up with us on email. That is eastscreen at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook at uh, East S West S. And we'd love to hear from you through any of those channels. If you have questions for us, if you'd like to write in and tell us that we're stupid, that you agree with the uh, South China Morning Post review, and you think that the, the review we talked about today was just lame, if you want to throw facts about Netflix at us, uh, feel free. Hit us up at any of those channels. I do urge you to follow Kevin and his uh, day-to-day writings and things that he's doing, so keep up with him. Where can they find you at, sir? Sir, I am, um, well, multiple medias. Um, I am at Film Business Asia. That's www.filmbiz.asia. You can email me at kevin at filmbiz.asia. You can find me on Twitter. I am the Golden Rock in one word, the Golden Rock. Um, and as I announced a few weeks ago, I am now uh, the entertainment editor um, at you know Cathay Pacific and Dragonair's uh, uh, Discovery and Dragon uh, and sorry Silk Road magazines. Uh, you will see my work uh, beginning with the September issue. So exactly a month from now, you will see my my me uh, my work on a magazine. Yeah, uh, that's about it. Excellent. So please keep up with Kevin and all that he does. And as I said, I think I said last time, once uh, once that start, start stuff starts filtering out into print and in digital form, we'll talk with Kevin a little bit more about what it's like to do that. Next episode, 173, uh, looks like we're going to go with Patrick Kong, and I think we're going to do Love Detective, although we do have... Tale of Three Cities out this week uh, as well. We're just not we're just not into the serious movies at all, aren't we? I, you know, if I have a choice, uh, yeah, Patrick Kong's more my speed. Um, I, I'm a bit I'm a bit hesitant when it comes to Tang Wei and period pieces after uh, after uh, Golden Era. Yeah, Golden Era. I don't know. <laughs> well, we'll see. Uh, but yeah, I think that's that's probably gonna be what we're talking about next time. But maybe not. You never know with this show. But yeah, all that more on our next show. Until then, this is the East Screen, West Screen podcast saying Happy Ghost Festival. And we'll see you next time. See you next time, everybody. Uh